Hello, welcome back everyone to episode three of Scotty Digs Deep. I just want to thank you and uh, welcome you to today's program. Thank you for uh, joining me and for being patient with me. This is um, a new venture for me, so I'm trying to improve with each rendition and I'm trying to give you uh, an informative and an enjoyable experience. Um, I understand that you all take time out of your day to invest in me and what I have to say. And so I want to make that a good value for you. And I want you to feel as though you, you've spent your time wisely. So once again, thank you for being here. My whole effort and my whole goal here is to try to bridge the gap so that we have some greater understanding uh, on both sides of the aisle in hopes that we can come together and begin to unify. I see a community and a country that is very heavily divided, that we've been pulled to the extremes and we've been conditioned and programmed to feel as though we have to choose one extreme or the other. And I think ultimately, as Americans, we all have some commonalities. And I think it's those commonalities that we need to begin to entrust in and we need to begin to focus on and stop allowing ourselves to be ripped apart and torn apart and felt and, and made to feel as though we have to be pigeonholed and that we have to be we have to be committed and tied to these very extreme ideologies. I think that at the end of the day, most of us want the same things. We want love, peace, joy, and happiness. We want some security. We want a sense of community. We want a good place to foster our children. And we want a place where we can enjoy our spiritual endeavors. And we want the freedom to do those things without being marginalized or oppressed or criminalized. And I think we all, we all share those common goals. And sometimes we lose sight of that. And I think it's largely by design. I think there's a 24-7 drumbeat from uh, media personalities who are telling us essentially that we are other than and we are different from and we are distinct among one another and that we cannot unify and we must constantly attack one another's positions and constantly attack one another's character and constantly attack one another's humanity by virtue of proving that we are somehow righteous and we are somehow um, better than or superior to or different from the next person. And I think all of that is largely smoke and mirrors. I think it's, it's a hoax. And I think it's a tool that is used by the powers that be to keep us from recognizing that collectively it is the people who hold the power but we hand that power over to the system because we fail to acknowledge our collective oneness. So my goal here, and as much as, as I'm able to, is to talk about those things and where I see that breakdown and how we can begin to erase some of these things that have been leveraged between us so that we can come back together and be one united America. At the end of the day, all great civilizations have fallen. And there's no reason to think that America would be or should be any different than any of our predecessors. And if we continue to allow uh, this internal chaos to pull and tug at us, we will fall from within. It won't be an outside 
nation that will destroy us, but we will destroy ourselves. So we need, in my estimation, we need to start identifying our commonalities and our common goals and work towards those things. So that's my hope. That's what I'm here for. And I hope you can join me on this experience. And I hope you can share some of your thoughts and concerns and maybe questions you might have about my opinions. And I would like to bring you into this conversation. And I would like to uh, make this a mutual thing where we can both hopefully learn something new. So in an effort to move the conversation forward and actually to get some resolution to the system which has historically marginalized black and brown people through law and through practical application of that law, I think it's important to understand where our blind spots are and where we're missing the pleas from black and brown people to hear and understand where our grievance lies and why we continue to ask to be heard and why we feel frustrated in having our voice stifled or otherwise undermined by programs like Fox News or the Glenn Becks of the world or the Rush Limbaugh's of the world, um, the Sean Hannity's and Laura Ingram's of the world, the Tucker Carlson's of the world, um, and the pseudo-science um, race supremacists that are they will try to manipulate uh, and misconstrue things in order to act as an apologist for white supremacy. So it's important that we are aware when we ourselves are engaging in those games and in those tropes and how in doing so we are shutting down the black voice which is crying out to be heard and that frustration is growing increasingly a 400 year history in this country where black and brown people have been essentially treated as second class citizens. And so I want to go through, um, there was a lady, her name, I believe is Allie Henney. Uh, she came up with what she called racist nonsense bingo. And she outlines some of these arguments that people make or some of these tropes that they throw up responsively anytime black and brown people raise a concern about their treatment. Uh, so there's one, two, three, four, five. It looks like there's about 25 of these excuses or these uh, tactics that they will use to deny, deflect, and redirect the conversation. So I just want to go through through some of them and give my opinion of what exactly um, is going on there. So I hope you'll join me for this and we can talk about some of the things that concern me and uh, some of the things that I think need to be brought to light. Now, I'm not going to go real in depth on any of these. There are 25 of them. I don't even know that I'll touch on them all uh, simply because I don't want this thing to be drawn out and take up your whole entire day listening to me. Uh, but I do want to just gloss over some of them and, and a few of them I'll give a little bit more time to to really uh, explore what's going on there. So the first of these listed here is reverse racism or the idea that blacks can be racist too. So my counter argument to that to that counter would be that of course blacks can be racist. Of course blacks can be 
hateful and bigoted and have horrible opinions about non-blacks and other people. And of course, on an individual level, blacks may be able to treat another person, perhaps a white person, absolutely horrifically. And I would never for any second discount someone's experience with that. But my counter argument would be that blacks don't have the system and the institutions in place to deny a white person life, liberty, freedom, opportunity based on their opinion. So it's my belief that people are free because we are Americans. People are free to hold any beliefs that they want. They're free to hold any opinions that they want. I am totally fine if Joe downstairs thinks I'm a nigger. My issue would be if Joe downstairs leverages his power as the boss or the police officer or the judge to then take his opinion and allow it to inform how he treats me. If he's the police officer who thinks I'm a nigger, he's going to treat me wholly different than had he thought of me otherwise. If he's the judge who thinks that I'm a nigger, he may likely pass a sentence that reflects that. So while blacks do have every bit the ability to have a cold, dark heart, the reality is they don't have the system in place to oppress people based on those beliefs. So my, my bottom line here is I'm not the thought police. I can't control what someone does or thinks or feels about me. However, I do argue that I have a right to be treated fairly under that law. So my whole reason for protesting against racism isn't to change any man's heart. That's between that man and his God. But my reason for protesting is so that the system either adjusts itself because I refuse to adjust to the injustice. So I need the system to adjust itself or I will work to tear down the system and replace it with something that ultimately acknowledges my rights. So the second technique they will use is to cite a successful black person or um, a successful person of color as evidence that white supremacy is not systemic. So, for example, Larry Kudlow, who is uh, one of Donald Trump's advisors, said the other day that he does not believe that uh, uh, racism is systemic as evidenced by the fact that Barack Obama was president for two terms. Well, that's a sleight of hand trick. Um, We need to understand that the reason that Barack Obama was president for two terms is because uh, black people and Hispanic people and Asian people, they came out to vote in historic numbers and uh, blacks voted for Obama over 90% of black voters voted for Obama. 70-ish percent of Hispanic and Asian vote, voters voted for Obama. And the majority of white voters did not vote for Obama in either election. So the idea that somehow whites were responsible for President Obama being elected is, is smoke and mirrors. It's just not, it doesn't hold water. It was black and brown people coming out to vote in historic numbers that ensured Barack Obama would be elected president. 
The next objection they throw out is to say that you were never a slave. So that is very disingenuous in its very nature because it's based on the premise that the suppression of black people somehow ended with the end of slavery. So we know that slavery lasted for 250 years and after slavery ended, during the period of Reconstruction, we saw the, the, the rise of Jim Crow laws. And these laws were even perhaps more brutal and oppressive than slavery itself. Essentially, it may have been Frederick Douglass, but I'm not sure. But it, there was a quote that said that um, blacks traded the lash of the whip for the shotgun. And what this was indicating was that blacks were no longer under the, the whip of the slave master, but then they were now in front of the barrel of the shotgun of the KKK and the terrorists and the lawmakers who would enact these harsh laws and then punish them brutally for perceived violations of these laws. Laws which were so strict and regimented that no one could possibly adhere to them all. And the idea was to keep blacks tormented and, and in fear. And this, this lasted where blacks were hung from trees and burnt and beat and abused while white onlookers would have picnic lunches. This lasted for a period of 100 years. So that brings us up to 1968 and the Civil Rights Act. So we're talking just over six, or 50 years ago that blacks received so-called equal rights. And that as well is an illusion. But to, to argue that somehow the end of slavery or the fact that I've never been a slave meant that I haven't been um, marginalized in the society or treated somehow unfairly in the society is just a myth of epic proportions. So that brings us to the next argument that I want to counter. And that's, that's when people, uh, white people, generally the, the majority class, want to argue that the lived experience of a black and brown person isn't what the black and brown person perceive it to be. So for example, I had a conversation on a Twitter feed earlier today with a woman who was from Russia and she was telling me that I am wrong to, to feel that black and brown people have been oppressed in America because she knows what oppression really looks like because she grew up in Soviet Russia and the communist uh, party was so brutal there that it disqualifies my lived experience and my lived experience shouldn't be uh, respected because I don't know what true oppression looks like. And that's that's a very intellectually dishonest argument. She has no way of putting herself in my shoes any more than I have any way of putting myself in her shoes. She wasn't there when cops held me at gunpoint on three separate occasions and once charged me falsely with a crime. She wasn't in the room when my girlfriend's father told me, nigger, get out. She hasn't lived my experience, so she can't possibly pretend to know what that experience is. And to presume that she knows otherwise is just the height of arrogance. So these next two kind of go hand in hand. They love to bring up black on black crime and they love to bring up Chicago. These are their go-tos. If you hear that, you can be assured that this is someone who has who has practiced this and it's not the first time that they've thrown this out there that's that's the padded response whenever 
uh, white supremacy is challenged and people don't want to take an honest look at it, they they reflexively reach for black on black crime. And what about Chicago? So first of all, the the idea of black on black crime is a myth. And I touched on this in a previous segment. It's a myth um, because crime is a function of proximity and socioeconomics. So what that's saying is that the folks in my community, because of our uh, 400-year history of redlining and uh, marginalizing people and dividing them, we know that the people in my community largely look like me and the people in your community largely look like you. And people don't drive across town to offend. They get in an argument or dispute, which escalates, and they do that with people in their own neighborhoods. And so the crimes generally occur within one's own neighborhood. So if I'm a black man, there's chance are my neighbors are by and large black. So if I, if I get into some kind of dispute, it's going to likely mean I offend against a black person and vice versa for a white person. That's the way our communities have been segregated, much like our churches. Someone said that the most segregated hour in America is at 11 o'clock Sunday morning, but I digress. So if we are to offend against someone, it's generally going to be against someone who looks like us. So the reality is that blacks offend against other blacks 88% of the time, according to the latest FBI data, and whites offend against whites 81% of the time, according to the FBI data. So the idea that black on black crime is somehow so different from or or alienated from white on white crime is inaccurate and it's just it's a it's a trick that they use to uh infer that blacks are somehow self-loathsome self-loathing or or hate hate themselves and so that they're they're violently attacking one another at some some epic proportion uh, it's just simply not not the case. Um, and then they try to bolster this argument by saying, well, what about Chicago? There's uh, shootings every day and there's um, thousands of people dying every year at the hands of uh, black murderers. So let's understand. Um, in 2015, I believe the last the last that I looked at, there was uh, 3000 white people murdered. I believe it was 2,100 or perhaps a little more, maybe 2,200 out of 3,000 white people who were murdered were murdered by other whites. And in terms of blacks, I think the number was like 2,500 blacks were murdered and 2,000 of them were murdered by other blacks. Um, so we know that generally speaking, whites kill whites and blacks kill blacks. We know also that crime is a function of socioeconomics. So when you, you, when you have a lot of poor people in a condensed environment like you have in Chicago, which also happens to be a major drug hub as it's like a central point in the country where drugs are coming in from the south and being taken to the east and west, New York, L.A., etc. You have a, a major drug hub in this area. Of course, you're going to see uh, more violence as a, as a as a method or means or a, a result of the drug trade, which is so heavily established in this area. So the violence that we're witnessing there has nothing to do with uh, skin color, but it has to do with poor people um, and 
disenfranchise people engaging in, in the drug trade as a means of survival. We also know that in certain neighborhoods in Chicago, um, there's, there's no job opportunities. We know that the schools are run down. We know that uh, secondary education um, is, is not pervasive. And we know that all of these things are a result of systemic policies and policies which have been enacted for many, many years. And so this is, this is the fruit of those policies. Um, so the idea that that Chicago somehow represents uh, all of black America is is just absolutely not true. We need to understand that if there are 2000 murders every year by black people, there are 42 million blacks in America. So if we are going to judge 42 million based on the. Point zero 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 one percent who are actually killing murder that's a problem with our thinking and that's something that we need to examine why would we reduce 42 million americans to 0.0001% so that that that's a that's a tr- that's a favorite trope of theirs that they love to pull um but it's it's intellectu- intellectually dishonest this next card that the apologist would pull is to say that you're the real racist. They will say that you bringing up the idea of racism is evidence that it is you who are, is the racist, right? So I'm a biracial man. My father was black. My mother was white. And I've experienced uh, white culture and I've experienced black culture and I've been accepted by whites and I've been rejected by whites and I've been accepted by blacks and I've been rejected by blacks and i've i've moved pretty fluidly throughout my life uh back and forth between these cultures and i've experienced um a lot within both cultures and so i have some some degree of understanding how they how they work or how they function uh and so the card then that they pull is to say you're the racist you're talking about race all you want to do is bring it up, etc. My counter to that would be that racism is so ingrained into the fabric of America that anytime someone points to the, that racism, they are accused of being a racist. They, it's so it's taken as a personal attack when someone says uh, racism exists. It's taken as, as a personal attack on America itself. And I think that's because racism is so intrinsically linked with America. It's such a huge part of our country and it has always proliferated. And so when you, when you move around the margins of that racism, you touch on the fundamental values and the foundation of America and people begin to feel that you are threatening America as a nation rather than the racist ideologies. And what I then find happen is that people would want to shut you down or shame you and say, you're the real racist. You, you, you always want to talk about this racism stuff and they want to shame you into silence. But we know that silence is compliance and our secrets keep us sick. So when we don't challenge these, these notions, we accept them. And when we're not actively 
working against racism. We are passively accepting that racism. So speaking for myself, I will never be shamed into silence. God gave me a voice and he put something on my heart. And I intend to share that with the world to do what I can to try to open some eyes or to at least share my perspective so that maybe someone out there will hear it and maybe it will help to foster a spark of empathy that maybe can can ignite some sort of movement or change within them. So as long as I have the ability to do that, that's what I intend to do. Next card they like to pull is the idea that blacks weren't the only oppressed population in the U.S., that there were also Irish slaves. Well, this is uh, a monumental misunderstanding that has been promulgated by white supremacists, this idea that Irish were enslaved. And then we are supposed to assume that Irish somehow moved beyond their station and have now become successful and well integrated into America. But we need to be honest about what or how the the Irish indentured servant differs from the black chattel slave. So Irish who were indentured servants largely were either paying a period of seven years uh, indebtedness for the cost of transportation from Ireland, or they were paying a period of imprisonment, i.e. indentured servitude, for a limited time, perhaps seven years, for crimes which they had committed in Ireland. And after which time they were released and often compensated in the forms of land, uh, livestock, and even cash payments and tools. Their, their treatment was not intergenerational. It was not inherited by their children. It was not lifelong. And it was not random and arbitrary because they happened to be Irish. So the whole notion that Irish were enslaved in the same regard that blacks were enslaved, that's literally comparing um, apples and oranges. I mean, you're talking about two entirely different things. It's, it's not even fair to say apples and oranges. You're literally comparing apples to jet, jet plane engines. Like they're two entirely different things. The next card that they like to pull is to appeal to a particular conservative black voice, say, for example, um, Candace Owens or perhaps Clarence Thomas or um, whoever uh, the, the sheriff that, that's often on Fox News with the big cowboy hat. Um, I don't know that clown's name, but they, they I think his name is David, Sheriff David something. He's a clown. So what, what they will often do, they'll play this card where they will appeal to certain black personalities and say, so for, I, have, I have a friend of mine, who's, he's an older gentleman, and I'm very fond of him, but he's got his ways. And one of the things that he often does is ask me to watch videos of such voices or ask me if I've heard about these particular uh, uh, comments that these folks have made. And I believe that he's good intended in doing that. But the idea that all black voices have to resonate and that we we all need to think in lockstep. First of all, that's that's uh that's something that we shouldn't aspire to. But beyond that, 
appealing to a particular person who may share my skin tone, but your philosophies or your ideals, um, that's disingenuous. I have no obligation to agree with someone else just because they share my skin tone. And we know that there are those people who may be at a different point along the spectrum in terms of becoming conscious and becoming knowledgeable about their play as a black American. So while someone may argue that conservative policies are in the interest of black people, that doesn't necessarily make them correct simply because they are black. I have a reason for holding the ideas that I hold and it's based on my lived experience. And there's no person black or white who can tell me what my experience is better than myself. So I don't necessarily need to uh, hear every opposing black voice. And I think it's also important to recognize that there are mothers out here who have killed their own children for insurance money. So the heart of man is corruptible and defiable. So simply because someone is getting something in return for their self-deprecation doesn't inform that I should that I should listen to them. Some people will gladly betray their own sentiments for a pat on the head or a few dollars. And we've seen that all throughout history. Like I said, there's mothers who would kill their own children for money. So just because a Candace Owens is constantly attacking blackness doesn't mean that I should be willing to take her seriously. I recently heard Candace Owens argue that blacks um, are the only people who will fight and scream and make martyrs out of the lowest among us. She, She was essentially quoting Shelby Steele, who said something to that effect that black community are the only community who uh, demand justice for the lowlifes, essentially, was the point. And I, and I thought, why wouldn't we do that? All persons are entitled to uh, liberty and justice, and they don't forego that simply because they've committed a crime. So I just I find it quite telling that Candace Owens was... She was talking with respect to George Floyd and she was indicating that he was a career criminal and that he had perhaps fentanyl in his system. And she glossed over it and said that um, we all agree that what happened to him wasn't right. But so here comes the what about ism. She she said, I quickly did a cursory uh, research on the Internet essentially implying that she was looking for justification as to why George Floyd deserved to be lynched in the street. So she feels if she could uh, reduce him sufficiently enough to a criminal or a thug or a drug addict or a nigger, then what he received at the hands of Officer Chauvin and the other officers was justifiable. And in my expectation, what happened to George Floyd lying there for eight and a half minutes while the life blood is being choked out of him is indefensible. And the idea that 
someone like Candace Owens would come along and try to find reason to make that acceptable is bewildering to me. And the last idea I want to examine um, is one that I think is well-intended and I understand the, the idea behind it, but I think ultimately it does a disservice. And that is the idea that I don't see race. And I think the intent behind that is the person saying, you know what? I don't judge you based on your skin. But we know, according to studies like uh, the implicit study at Harvard, we know that all of us make a snap judgment about who we think someone is based on physical appearance within the first two seconds of meeting them. And so to say that I don't see your skin tone in a country where we've had a a history of identifying and labeling and ostracizing people based on their skin tone um, is, is not, I believe, wholly honest. I think the idea is that you would like to not allow that to inform your behavior, but to say that you don't recognize it, I think is is perhaps not accurate. And I think that more a more honest assessment would be to say, yes, I see that we have different skin tone, but I don't believe that skin tone should inform how I view you. And I'm aware that in the United States, the social construct is such that you may be viewed as a black person, I may be viewed as a white person, you may be viewed as a biracial person, and that social contract suggests that there's certain uh, rights and privileges and responsibilities that we afford or deny to a particular person based on how we categorize them. And then the argument may become, I believe that that is wrong, and I'm working, therefore, to inform myself and become more aware of my biases and where my blind spots may lie and so that I so that I'm more thoughtful and considerate in how I engage people. So yes, I do see that you're a brown skinned man, but I'm trying to be aware that that should not inform my opinions of you or how I treat you. And ultimately I think if we can all get there that would be wonderful and we could perhaps be a colorblind society. But the reality is we we all have different skin tone and I think it's more appropriate that we acknowledge that but that we learn to not allow that to inform our thoughts, our feelings, our behaviors. So I, I have a very close friend who said that to me um, and I'm afraid that I attacked her or she felt attacked by my, by my response or my lack of response. And she's a, she's a very beautiful person. She's one of my best friend's wives and she's a very beautiful person and someone I, I look up to and I have great affinity and love for. Um, and she was, she was confused as to why I, um, challenged her on the idea that she doesn't see color. And and because I believe that she is such a good-hearted person, she honestly means that, right? I believe she truly means that she doesn't see color. 
But the fact is that our society as a whole sees color. And until we remove that from society or we become aware of it and how it's informing our behaviors, you know, it's going to continue to be an issue. So we have to be, I believe we have to be, awareness is the key. So it's okay to acknowledge the differences in our skin tone, but does that difference in skin tone say anything about the person that I am or the person that you are? So hopefully at some point we're able to tear that paradigm down and redefine it. I want to thank you all for taking the time to listen to me. Uh, there were more cards in the deck, the, the racist bingo, apolo- the, the racist apologist bingo. There were more cards that were in that deck. There was 25 or so, um, but I obviously only uh, responded to a handful of those because I didn't want this to go on for too long. Um, but I encourage you and I invite you to reach out to me and to have a conversation with me and to participate in my podcast and help to make this a more enjoyable learning experience for us all. I believe that the reason that racism continues to be an issue in America is because America continues to be largely segregated. And we have a confirmation bias, a lot of us, in this cognitive distortion where because we don't have frequent interactions with people of different races or different ethnicities or different religions, we are left to listen to the the uh, description that the, the news media and these talk show personalities give us. And the the newspaper, when we read about Guy X, who was Y color and Z religion, those things then go to confirm our bias because we see, oh, well, here's another guy who matches that description behaving that way. And so it confirms our bias while we are simultaneously ignoring evidence to the contrary. So we, it's like the shiny object draws our eye, but we are ignoring all the evidence to the contrary. And then we are reinforcing that bias by constantly tuning in to radio and television personalities who have a vested interest in propping up that that distorted view. So I think it's important that we begin to reach out and cross the aisle and um, begin to see one another, first of all, as human beings, because that's what we are. We are humans, humans in, a, in a living experience, in a living expression. So first of all, we need to understand that we all have that humanity which we should acknowledge within one another. And then beyond that, we need to understand that this tribalism is divisive and it is this tribalism that will tear this country apart from the inside. We need to work towards our commonality, which is that of of an American. Because everyone who believes in the ideals that America professes, which is life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness for all people, is therefore, by definition, American. So that means all of us. And that's without regard to our race, our social status, our sexual orientation, our religion. Some would argue that this is a a white Christian country. um, But I would beg to differ. I believe this is a country where we have the freedom to practice whatever religion we choose. Where we have the freedom to be whatever sexuality 
we choose? Do we have the freedom to live as a black man or a white man or an, uh, a Latino or an Asian that those things do not preclude us from sharing in the lived experience as an American? So I think it's very important that we continue to build conversation and that we continue to work towards our common agenda, which hopefully is, as we proclaim, liberty and justice for all. Not the people who look like me or think like me or sound like me, but for all Americans. That's my hope. Until we get back together, I wish you love and light. I hope everything um, that you desire in your life comes to fruition and for those areas where you may come up short, I hope God grants you to the serenity to accept those things and to continue to move forward on your path. Take care until we speak again.